You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 4. This will be a little bit different this morning as the, the whole sermon this morning, in a sense, is to set up the context for next week as we look at Matthew Matthew's chapter 1 and 2. So we'll eventually get to the prophet Isaiah and actually reference a number of texts in Isaiah. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed when we think about your love for us in Jesus Christ. Hearing the truth of Scripture that the worship team just sang to us, it reminds us of the beauty of the, the multifaceted beauty of the truth of the gospel, the inspired word that you have given to us, the word made flesh in Jesus, your sovereign plan, Father, before the foundation of the world, the Spirit actively working in so many ways in the incarnation. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our midst this morning through your word to open our eyes to see the glory of the Christmas story set in the context of the whole redemptive story. We pray this all in the strong name of our miraculously born, crucified, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is your favorite story? Or maybe I should ask it this way. What makes a good story? Maybe you like something predictable, but heartwarming. Sort of like my parents and the Hallmark Channel. It's the same story told a hundred different ways, and yet somehow they both cry at the conclusion of every single movie. Maybe you like complex stories with lots of unforeseen twists and turns. Maybe you appreciate stories with grit, lots of pain and hurt. There's a certain realism about them. Perhaps you're drawn to stories of triumph and victory, something that concludes on a high note, uh, to mention just one totally random example, like when Rudy Rudiger finally suits up for a Notre Dame football game, gets in for the last two plays, sacks Georgia Tech's quarterback and is carried off the field. Or maybe that's just me. But you love stories where everything ends the way you think it should end. Friends, how often do you stop to think about the whole story of the Bible? The story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Over the last several years, there has been a renewed interest in understanding the storyline of Scripture, trying to grasp how all the pieces fit together. I've been helped by so many different brothers and sisters in this way, by other pastors, by theologians, by authors of children's books. But each time I rehearse the redemptive story, my 
heart is moved to worship our great and sovereign God who loved sinners in this way. He sent His one and only Son as a perfect substitute to save His people from their sin. One major reason we need to pause often to rehearse Scripture's storyline is that it ingrains in our minds and hearts a particular worldview. The more our thinking is shaped by God's sovereign and unfolding plan of redemption, the more we will be able to make sense of everything else. In fact, it is the biblical narrative which makes sense of every other story. Uh, Douglas Wilson illustrates this truth when he writes, All earthly stories end, even when they are so good that you wish they would go on and on for thousands of pages more. But this final story will not end. Every chapter is richer, fuller, and more thrilling than the last. Eternal life is the ultimate story. Every good story foretells this last one in some way. Every good story that is told here on earth has a kind of shadowy reality, but it always taps into a deeper reality and truth. And when we finally enter heaven, we will realize in full how all the best stories were prefiguring that last, greatest story of all. Friends, this week I want to rehearse the big story of Scripture, and I want to do this in an effort to help each of us as we move through the Christmas season. Each year we all face the temptation to disconnect the events of the Incarnation from their greater redemptive context. And if we do this, if we do this, brothers and sisters, our worship of Jesus and our gratitude to God for His gift of Jesus will lack depth and richness and sweetness. From beginning to end, the Bible is telling one story. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones describes this in her wonderful children's book that every adult here should read as well. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and this is how it begins. The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers His name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. So may the Holy Spirit help us recapture the wonder and the awe of this amazing true story. It begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God spoke. The story begins with God, who has always been. He has always existed, and He has always existed exactly how He is now. If that seems confusing, it's because He's beyond what anyone can fully comprehend. In the beginning, God spoke and everything came into existence by His command. The entire universe was created and filled with a dramatic display of galaxies, stars, planets, including Earth, on, on which was a perfect garden of paradise called Eden. Of all the beauty He created, the masterpiece was a man and a woman. God made Adam and Eve in His image to reflect Him. They were created with the grand purpose of worshiping Him by loving Him, serving Him, and enjoying relationship with Him. By God's design, all of creation was in harmony and was exactly the way it was supposed to be. During this time, there was no pain, no suffering, no sickness or death. There was complete love, acceptance, and intimacy between God and man, between Adam and Eve, and throughout creation. But you know the story. Something tragic happened. Adam and Eve were far from being equal to God, yet He lovingly placed them in charge of all He had created in Eden. He, he gave them the freedom to make decisions and govern the earth with one rule. Don't eat the fruit of a specific tree. One day, God's enemy, a fallen angel named Satan, wanted to overthrow God, so he took the form of a serpent and lied to Adam and Eve. He deceived them into thinking God was not good and did not have their best interests in mind. As a result, they knowingly disobeyed God. In rebellion, Adam and Eve ate the fruit deciding that they, not God, would determine right and wrong. The consequences of their actions were devastating. Like a virus, sin entered into all of creation and into the hearts of Adam and Eve. Sin, suffering, and pain were passed down from generation to generation. All of creation was distorted from its original design. We've all read, heard, and even lived the stories of war. Poverty, disease, greed, and scandal that have plagued our world. And these are all the result of sin. When we think about the perfection and love that existed at the beginning of creation, we realize, as Tim Keller said so often, that we are far more flawed and far more sinful than we can dare imagine. Just think of the grudges we've held, the lies we've told, the the thoughts that we would never dare say aloud. An honest glance into our own hearts reveals this truth. We are guilty. Everyone has sinned. And the ultimate consequence, even worse than physical death, is eternal separation from a loving God in terrible misery and torment. And friends, this is real. As the biblical story unfolds and sin enters the picture, there is an unavoidable question that arises, and that's this, can anything be done? Is there any hope? 
Well, God, according to his own good and sovereign plan, removed Adam and Eve from Eden as a result of their sin, but left them with a promise of rescue and hope. This promise took on the form of covenant commitments made by God. Promises and prophecies abound throughout the Old Testament, and all of them are pointing and, and moving toward the fulfillment of these covenant commitments, all culminating in the coming of a Messiah, a deliverer, a liberator, a savior. In Genesis chapter 3, God promised that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head. He would defeat sin and death. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, God's word says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 12, and following, God promised that through a man named Abram and his line, he would bring blessing to all the nations. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, the Lord said to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that through King David, he would establish an everlasting kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then the prophet Isaiah, if you're not there already, turn there with me, has much to say about the promised one, the seed of the woman, Abraham's offspring, and the eternal Davidic king. In Isaiah chapter 4, through judgment, the Messiah will cleanse sinners, washing away their guilt. Look at verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. In Isaiah chapter 7, so flip forward to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. So here God decides to send a sign of his own choosing, as Ray Ortland writes, not bolts of lightning falling from heaven on the enemy armies, but God's token of his saving presence is improbable. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You see the context in which these promises are made and how crazy it would seem. 
go forward to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah 9, we are reminded again that the sovereign plan of God is not what we expect. His wisdom is infinite and His plan is perfect even when it reveals that the one who is mighty and everlasting will come as a baby. Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this through a baby. In Isaiah 53, the God-man will be pierced and crushed. Flip forward to Isaiah 53. He will bring ultimate and eternal healing to his people. Isaiah 53, look at verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. We'll come back to Isaiah 53, but flip forward to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, listen to what the prophet writes. Isaiah 61, look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, describing his mission. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So the, the ministry of the Messiah is defined as helping people in trouble. People in bondage. People whose hearts are broken. Friends, Jesus comes to bear the guilty despair of his people far away and to replace it with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. But how would this happen? How would this all be accomplished? Look at Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, Christ will come in vengeance and victory. You'll notice verse 1, the mention of Edom and Basra. Edom was a nation south of Israel, and Basra was their capital city. Edom was a long-standing enemy of Israel and hated them so much that Edom as a nation became a shorthand way of epitomizing malice toward God and His people. So with that in mind, 
Look at verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I want you to, I want you to listen to the staggering explanation of this text. Isaiah asks the question, Who is this coming from Edom? Blood spattered with the gore of the enemies he has slaughtered. The, the prophet is speaking as one of the watchmen on the wall. He's looking and longing for God to come and rescue us from the madness in our own hearts. Suddenly, out in the distance from Edom, he sees someone coming. Who is this, friend or foe? Why is his clothing spattered red? Has he been treading grapes in the wine press? Has he been making wine? Could the expression be that, or the explanation be that simple and reassuring? No. No, he's been taking vengeance on his enemies. He's been fighting for redemption. And he's done it alone. Not with a great army, but all by himself. We didn't help him. We don't even see him until his victory is already complete. Look at him out there, the way he's approaching us, marching in the greatness of his strength. He's not even tired. He's energized. He's awesome. He's terrible in his wrath. Who is this? Who is this? This is a vision of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Friends, in the biblical story, sin destroys and sin devastates, but the God of grace promises rescue and victory through his perfect Son. And here's the major point I want to make this morning. The events, the events of Christmas reflect what we know is true about the whole story, what comes before and what comes after. There is both trial and triumph. And it's not just true of the biblical story, so I don't want you to disconnect this from your own life personally. 
But this reality brings hope to every Christian in the midst of suffering, doesn't it? It's through your suffering that you will experience the closeness and the sweetness and the victory of Jesus. And you will be reminded that in Him, your present trials will give way to eternal joy and triumph because you are in Him. So yes, we see the devastating effects of sin, but over and over we find promises and glimpses of deliverance, of rescue, of victory, of ultimate triumph, triumph over sin and death. When Jesus arrives on the earthly scene, John tells us that his own people did not receive him. Well, why? If he had been prophesied and they were waiting, then why was he rejected? Well, no doubt part of this rejection stemmed from their understanding of and focus on the triumph of the Messiah while forgetting about or ignoring the trial that he would endure. Here's what I mean. Scripture makes it crystal clear that the promised Messiah would bring victory, but His victory would be won through suffering. His victory would be won through suffering. There has to be death before there can be resurrection. So friends, Jesus was indeed the victor, but His victory would come through immense pain through trial, through rejection, and through suffering. And I think it's really important for us to take time to remember both the trial and the triumph of Christmas. Consider this. If you existed, if you existed as part of an oppressed people group, and you were promised a great deliverer, even if some measure of suffering was prophesied, your, your tendency would, would likely be to focus entirely on the conquering and the victory he would bring. Now, this would be totally natural. But we can't do this. We need to see the whole picture that Scripture paints for us. In the infinite wisdom of God, the healer would be beaten. The exalted one would be humbled. The lion would become a baby. The king would die as a criminal. The savior would be rejected. The divine would be spit upon. The perfect would be mocked. The victor would be crushed. But the last word would belong to the one who spoke the first word the universe ever heard. So friends, there is a terrible kind of beauty in the pain that casts its shadow over the first Christmas. Yes, there was joy, but that joy was displayed against a backdrop of suffering. And we'll, we'll see this in detail next week, but this shouldn't surprise us because what we see in part 
in the events surrounding the birth of Christ, we see fully in the events surrounding the death of Christ. Victory through suffering, triumph through trial. I want you to flip back to Isaiah 53 one more time. And I want to look at a couple of other verses. Look at verse 10. Isaiah writes of the suffering servant, the coming Messiah. He writes of the baby in the manger. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We need to remember that the death of Jesus was more than a human plot. It was a divine strategy. At his cross, Jesus was doing the will of the Lord, and he wasn't embittered by it. He didn't hang from his cross screaming curses at his tormentors the way other victim, victims did. Nor did he blaspheme God. He perceived in his torments the saving will of the Lord. And this is the mystery of the cross. It was on that instrument of human torture that Jesus Christ made his soul an offering to God for other people's sin. The cross, therefore, was no defeat. Isaiah's prophetic eye can see that Jesus was taking the initiative by his death making the will of God prosper in the most improbable way imaginable. At his cross, Jesus achieved the eternal purpose of God, and he did it with victorious love. He would triumph through trial. Brothers and sisters, as you come to the table this morning in just a few moments, let me invite you to connect the events of the incarnation to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. The promised one has come. In humility, he was crucified, but in victory, he was raised to rule and reign 
forever. Let, let this story drive you to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have never turned in repentance and faith, my hope is that through this overview, this introduction to the redemptive story, that you have seen Christ in His love. That you have seen Him in His suffering. That you will realize that this price He paid was not for His own sin, but for the sin of all those who repent and believe. And you can be counted in that number this morning. Turn to Jesus in faith. Believe in Him. Trust Him. As you prepare to take of the bread and the cup, consider the words of this profoundly beautiful hymn. I think it serves as a summary of what we've talked about this morning. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life are Ransom shed for us His precious blood. Who His love will not remember? Who can cease to sing His praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Friends, that's, that's what was happening at Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that You would work in us by Your Spirit as we have recounted this morning the, the redemptive story and then we will add to that next week. I pray Father, that You would give us eyes to see Jesus. That You would give us ears to hear the Gospel story. That You would give us hearts to receive the truth of this. God, may we be reminded that You have loved us in this way. You sent Your only Son, Jesus, to come. To be born of a virgin. To live a sinless life to die as the substitute for sinners, the perfect sacrifice. The innocent one who took our guilt upon himself, who bore your wrath, who satisfied it completely, who uttered the glorious words, it is finished. And it was.